those who have been paying attention to the order of worship over the last couple of weeks and our church's newsletter will have noticed that there has been a change to our text this morning. Originally, until late last week, I was planning on preaching 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through the end of chapter 2. But after immersing myself in that section, I have decided that the better way forward is to split it up. So this morning we'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 21. And we'll be looking at it under three headings. A reminder to the end, a reminder of Christ, and a reminder of the Word. So our first point, a reminder to the end. If you're not already there, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 12 through 15 to start off with. And that passage can be found on page 1018 of the Bibles provided in the pews. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. And please follow along as I read. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Second Peter is referred to as Peter's farewell. Um, and looking at verses 12 through 15, I think the reason why is fairly obvious, right? I mean, in verse 14, Peter writes, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And Peter is referencing the words of Jesus found in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Then verse 19, this Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Interestingly, the gospel according to John then records that Peter asked Jesus about John's death. Well, what's going to happen to John? Jesus responded in verse 22, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And that you follow me is what's driving Peter in these four verses, Second Peter as a whole, and frankly his entire life all the way up to the end. So, so Peter transitions from the introductory part of his letter, the, the first 11 verses, into the section of his letter that lets us, the reader, know that this is Peter's farewell address. A farewell address was a common form used in ancient letters. It generally contained a prediction of death, prophecies about the future, exhortations to virtue, some form of commission, and a stating of the author's legacy. And, and recognizing a letter as a farewell address was a signal to the readers that a wise man was going to be imparting some final wisdom so the letter's recipients had better pay attention. So in verse 12, Peter writes... Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He's saying, look, this is so important that I'm not going to stop telling you about it. I'm going to go to my grave preaching and teaching this to you. What's more, in verse 15, he asserts that, in fact, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And Peter is setting up the body, the, the meat of his letter, his, his pushback on the false teachers combined with his continued call to pursue grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He's setting that up by reminding them that they have the truth, 
And they know it's the truth because Peter learned it from Jesus himself. So cling to it. Don't be deceived. Your eternal state depends on it. But let's look at these qualities that Peter is reminding us about. And the way the sentence is constructed, his use of the future tense combined with his use of the phrase, these qualities, lets us know that he's thinking about what he's already written and what he's going to write, which is already in his mind. Second Peter isn't a stream of consciousness. Peter had a clear objective with this letter. He knew what he wanted to say before he began writing it. Now, because we haven't yet looked at the things Peter writes about in chapter 2 and 3, for our purpose this morning, we'll briefly look at these qualities that we covered three Sundays ago, found in verses 1 through 11. And and we're not going to do a comprehensive review. You can listen to that sermon from three weeks ago on our, our church's website if you'd like. So in short, Peter is reminding his audience that believers are to pursue and to rest in the knowledge of God that has been given to them by God and by the power of the Holy Spirit to faithfully pursue godliness, virtuous moral living as defined by God. And knowledge of God is more than just head knowledge. Intellectual knowledge of God will only get us so far. What's needed is the type of knowledge that comes with having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus that includes intellectual knowledge. God has revealed himself to us. Regardless of what the skeptics claim, we have knowledge of God. Beyond just factual knowledge, though, but including it, the primary way that he reveals himself to his children is through saving faith in Jesus. And because of that relationship with Jesus, that knowledge of God, verse 3 tells us that his divine power has granted to us all things that that pertain to life and godliness. And then Peter lists a series of virtues that reveal that we are Christ's, that we are growing in grace. Peter encourages us to pursue these things. Being a child of God changes us. As we grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we are made more like Christ in our life. Our changing ethics reveals this truth. In turn, our sanctification, our being made more like Jesus, gives us confidence that God is bringing us safely home to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 11. Before we move on, I want to bring out an application. As I mentioned earlier, what's driving Peter is Jesus' command, you follow me. And that's what all that brief review we just looked at is about. That's what those 11 verses are about. That's what Peter has taught has lived and continues to teach even as he walks to his grave. This is Peter's testimony that he obeyed. To the end of his life, Peter followed Jesus. And this, Peter is saying, is what it looks like to follow Jesus. To faithfully embrace the relationship with God that we have been given by grace through faith in Jesus. To continue to desire to put off the old man, to put on the new man, and to faithfully pursue godliness. And Peter followed Jesus because he knew that Jesus was coming back to usher him into God's eternal kingdom. And unless Jesus comes back first, we're all going to enter the grave like Peter. And so Christian, don't just listen to Peter's reminder. Heed his reminder. In so doing, like Peter, you won't stay in the grave forever, but you will join him in all of your brothers and sisters in Christ with our King and Savior Christ in his eternal kingdom. Like Peter, all of us can boldly and faithfully worship and obey God because we know the end. Jesus has told us our end. Regardless of what trials or what sorrows, we have the assurance from our King that He is coming back to raise us from the dead and usher us into His eternal presence. Verse 15 is instructive for us. 
Nearing the end of his life, Peter assures his audience that I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now with, with make every effort, Peter is most likely referring to his apostolic writings, First and Second Peter, as well as the gospel according to Mark. Most conservative scholars believe that Mark wrote down Peter's teaching and preaching. Peter is concerned about making sure that his ministry will have a continuing and lasting effect on believers. Do you have that concern? Now, obviously, none of us here are apostles. And if you ever meet someone who claims to be an apostle, call them to repentance and then keep on moving. And none of us are writing or are ever going to write divinely inspired scripture. But are you following Jesus in such a faithful, joyful, robust manner as to point people to Jesus? With your life, are you leaving a testament to what God has done and is doing in your heart and your life? With the reception after your funeral, what kinds of things are people going to say about you? Like Peter, are people going to marvel at how you faithfully follow Jesus? A couple of weeks ago, while away teaching some apologetics classes, I had the privilege of spending some time with my sister's father-in-law. After having served Jesus faithfully as an army chaplain, he's nearing the end of his life and suffers from dementia. And as his mind breaks down, as the confusion swirls around his world, the only thing that he talks about is how much he loves Jesus. And as I listen to him share the gospel with every person he sees over and over and over, I think when my brain starts to fail, what's going to come out of my lips? By God's grace, I pray that like my sister's father-in-law, my soul never lets go of Jesus, that I continue to be faithful to the end because Christ has changed me. Continue to be faithful to the end because you know the end. By the way we live and talk, we communicate to others what we believe about Jesus. And this brings us to our second point, a reminder of Christ. Starting in verse 16, Peter reminds his readers that he didn't invent the gospel he's been preaching for the last three decades. It was revealed to him. And it was revealed to him through and by the person and work of Jesus Christ. So please follow along as I read verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Right off the bat, with these verses, Peter is not afraid to draw a sharp distinction between himself and the false teachers. He's not afraid to claim that he has the truth and that they're the ones lying. So you see, the false teachers have been accusing Peter and the apostles with inventing the gospel, with coming up with cleverly devised myth. In response, Peter is boldly asserting that he is preaching the true gospel because he was an eyewitness to Jesus' majesty. He and the apostles aren't the ones guilty of teaching cleverly devised myths. So when, when teaching Christian apologetics, I say that the answer to the question why do you trust the Bible is because Jesus was resurrected. And my community group heard this last Friday. I, I, so I trust the Bible because of the resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul freely acknowledges that if Jesus is still dead, 
Christians are wasting their time. If Jesus' resurrection didn't happen, then there's very little reason for us to have endured the time change to be here this morning. Jesus is, is not only the object of our faith, he is the source of our faith. We have full confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. God incarnate come to save his people from their sins because the grave could not hold him. And if you're skeptical that the grave could not hold him, listen to the eyewitness testimony of those who saw him, like Peter. I mean, Paul opens 1 Corinthians 15 with a docket of witnesses to the resurrection. In, in verse 6, he offers this easily refuted assertion if it's untrue. So, then Jesus appeared to more than 500, most of whom are still alive. Don't believe me, Paul says? Go question the witnesses. Now, as much as I would love to continue to provide an apologetic for the resurrection, we don't have the time, but if you want more information about why I am utterly convinced that a man once dead, Jesus, is now fully alive, please talk to me afterwards. The, the relevant point for us as we look at 2 Peter is that Peter is casting himself opposite the false teachers. And he's claiming authority because he's an apostle that walked and talked with Jesus even after his resurrection and was privileged to see Jesus in his majesty. Of all people, Peter had the right to talk about Jesus. Peter knew that he and the other apostles weren't making any of this up. And that we, at the beginning of verse 16, is referring to the other apostles. And the apostles, including Peter, have been preaching the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Later, in 2 Peter 3, 4, we learn that one of the things the false teachers have been claiming is that Jesus is not coming back. Contrary to the false teachers, as Thomas Schreiner puts it, what the apostles preached then was the powerful future coming of the Lord. On that day, it will be decided who will enter Christ's eternal kingdom, and it is reserved for those who have lived godly lives. But you may be here this morning, and after that quote, be saying to yourself, wait a minute, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You're all sinners. If Jesus' eternal kingdom is reserved only for those who have lived godly lives, none of you are making it. And to that I say, good observation. I mean, you're right. We're all sinners. We're all hypocrites. And members of Arlington Baptist Church, if you disagree with me, if you believe that you're not a hypocrite, please tell me after the service because I'd really like to have a conversation with you. You see, the real question isn't how can God exclude anyone from Jesus' eternal kingdom. It's how can God let any of us in if being godly is required? Because we're all sinners. We've all rebelled against our creator. And God hasn't hidden from us the consequence of our sin. It's death. Sin deserves the punishment of eternal death. In his book, The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, after briefly discussing God's holy and righteous character, Leon Morris helpfully points out, it was inevitable that the wrath of God should be the divine reaction to all sin. And that's why those of us who are members of ABC are here. We recognize that we're sinners. We're hypocrites. And we can't save ourselves from God's wrath. Thankfully, Jesus came to save sinners. We're here this morning because we need Jesus. An unbeliever, I submit that you need Jesus too. In a sermon that he preached over three decades before he wrote 2 Peter, Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, Acts 2, 38. And the casing for those words is faith in Jesus. You see, Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience because we can't. He then took the punishment for the sins of his people upon himself. And because Jesus was sinless, death had no claim on him. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. If the wages of sin is death, and it is, 
What are the wages then for someone who is sinless? It's life. And so Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, vindicating his claim as the righteous, sinless Son of God. By acknowledging your guilt before God and placing your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven and you are adopted into the family of God. From that point on, God sees you in Christ. Jesus' perfect life, his godly life is imputed to you, it's credited to you. This is what we mean when we say Christians are in Christ. Through faith, and, and quoting Michael Horton, through faith we share in Jesus' election, flesh, life of obedience, atoning death, resurrection, justification, holiness, and glorification. We are in the family. And being in God's family through faith means that we then begin bearing the fruits of righteousness. This is what Peter has been stressing through the first uh, chapter of 2 Peter. Our works do not save us. But if we are truly a child of God, our life will begin to give evidence of the fact that we are now in God's family. And that's called sanctification. By the power of God's Spirit, those who are in Christ are being made more like Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're His. And His Spirit is conforming you to His image. And the fruits of the Spirit in your life are evidence that you are Christ's. Now understand that I just threw um, several dense theological points at you in a very short span of time. And if you have any questions, please ask me after the service. But before we move on in our text, because this is, this is of the utmost importance, I'm going to resummarize how you can be counted as godly and gain entrance into Jesus' eternal kingdom, because this is the most important thing you're going to hear this morning if you're an unbeliever. Okay, so you're a sinner, and that's a universal you. All of us are sinners, and that's a problem, because God was created. He create God wasn't created, God created us, and He is holy and demands holiness, which is perfect obedience to His law. Those of us who fail to perfectly obey God's law, and that's all of us, earn, deservedly so, God's wrath to eternal death. Graciously, God provided a way for sinners to escape his wrath and be counted as his obedient children, as godly. God himself left heaven and took on human flesh. During his life on earth, Jesus was tempted and tried in every way that we are. He was tempted to sin directly by Satan. He was tempted to doubt God's goodness during times of duress and want. He was tempted to serve himself instead of others. He suffered sleep deprivation, food deprivation, and the deprivation one feels when abandoned by your closest friends. Jesus suffered throughout his life on earth, yet he never once sinned. He never once broke God's law. And in an act of obedience and love, Jesus mounted the cross and suffered an agonizing death as the punishment for the sins of God's people. Three days later, because he was sinless, he rose from the dead. Death overstepped its bounds and claimed someone who did not deserve death. And one day, Jesus is going to come back to judge those who are not his and to reward those who are his. The question you need to ask yourself is, are you in Christ or are you still dead in your sins? Because if you're not Christ's, you're still under God's wrath and your current eternal destination is hell. If that's you, I urge you to repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus so that you too will gain entrance into Jesus' eternal kingdom. If you want to know more, what it, if you want to know more about what it means to be a Christian, Please let someone here know. I'll be at the back door after the service. But don't think that you can wait. You are either currently rejecting Jesus or you're placing your faith in Jesus. Now back to our text. Keep in mind, and this is an important contextual point, Peter is writing to combat the influence of false teachers who denied that Jesus will return one day. Because of that denial, they felt emboldened to live sexually immoral lives. You can read that in chapter 2. They were saying, since Jesus isn't coming back, it doesn't matter what you do or how you live. Peter is saying, 
That's incorrect. Since Jesus is coming back, it does matter what you do and how you live. And Peter tells us who this Jesus is that you're either rejecting or you're placing your faith in. He concludes verse 16 with the statement, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, what does that mean? Who's the we and what is meant by his, Jesus' majesty? And we discover the answers in verses 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Earlier in the worship service, our brother William read Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13, the account of the transfiguration. That event is what Peter is referencing in verses 16 through 18, which means that Peter, James, and John make up the we in verse 16. So, Peter, James, and John were witnesses to the transfiguration. We have the who and the what, but now we need the why. As in, why is Peter referencing the transfiguration here in 2 Peter? I submit that there are two primary reasons why Peter includes it. I have two subpoints. Some of you thought you'd never see the day when I have subpoints. Don't get used to it. One, it validates his apostolic authority. Two, it points to the final day of the Lord, which is one of the main things that Peter is responding to the false teachers about. After reminding the readers that he is an apostle in his greeting, Peter takes it a step further and reminds the readers that he was also one of the three that witnessed the transfiguration. He continues to contrast himself with the false teachers. So think of it like this. It would be like if after having the privilege of sitting down with Tom Brady's teammates and hearing what it's like playing with the greatest quarterback of all time, a couple of New York Giants fans who have never even met Tom Brady were to come along and say, no, those dudes have it wrong. We'll tell you what Tom Brady's really like. And then we were all to say, you know, I like what the Giants fans who've never met Tom Brady are saying. I think that their version of events is probably the correct one. Can you imagine the frustration on the part of Brady's teammates? And that's what Peter and the other disciples are dealing with. Peter is saying, we were there. We know what we're talking about. It doesn't make any sense that you're now listening to these other people who, to put it bluntly, have no idea what they're talking about. They weren't there. Peter is restating and reminding his readers about his authority to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was there, and he knows who Jesus is. In his testimony, Peter's testimony is verified by the testimony of the other apostles. He, he didn't make any of this up. By the way, but before we get to the second subpoint, I want to say how much I love how Peter uses majestic glory as a proper name for God in verse 17. When reading the Bible, the effusiveness with which the writers speak about God is a reminder of how a deep relationship with the sovereign creator of the universe prompts joyous vivid, energetic responses. When you're praising God through prayer or song, don't be afraid to articulate the joy and wonder that a relationship with God prompts in your soul. The God of the universe is saving you and calls you his own. In turn, you get to call him your father. Don't allow fear of man to cause you to hold back your praise. However, Peter also has a pedagogical reason for referring to God as majestic glory. Notice in verse 16, Peter writes that we were eyewitnesses to Jesus' majesty. He follows that up in verse 17 with a reference to the glory that Jesus received. Majesty and glory. God the Father and God the Son share the majesty, and the glory belongs to them both. While we're still in our excursus, so to speak, I want to bring out an application. Notice how God the Father 
delights in proclaiming his son. Do you delight in proclaiming God's son, your king and savior? When was the last time you told someone about Jesus? All right, the, the second reason that Peter includes the transfiguration here in 2 Peter is to refute the false teacher's claims that Jesus isn't coming back. Now, some of you may be wondering how the transfiguration refutes that claim that Jesus isn't coming back. And this is going to take some unpacking. And so keeping your finger in 2 Peter, turn to Matthew 16, 28, which can be found on page 822 of the Bibles provided in the pews. Matthew 16, 28. Matthew 16, 28. Please follow along as I read. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And if you look down, what immediately follows is the transfiguration. Now, still keeping your, your finger in 2 Peter, turn to Mark 9, verse 1. That's page 844 in the Pew Bibles. Mark 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And what immediately follows? The transfiguration. With your finger still in 2 Peter, turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 27, page 866, Luke 9, 27. And generally I write in my notes when people are looking up passages to take a drink, but I'm not thirsty anymore after having you guys look up two passages already. All right, Luke 9, 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What's next? The transfiguration. But wait a minute, John. I, I can read some of your minds, especially since some of you sitting in this room have specifically asked me about one or all of these verses we just read over the last couple of years. You're thinking, you told me that these verses are referring to the transfiguration and not the second coming. Are you about to contradict yourself? No, I'm not. In the three verses we just looked at, what Jesus told his disciples is immediately fulfilled in the next several verses, the transfiguration. So yes, Peter, James, and John saw the kingdom of God in its power and glory. As the passage in Matthew puts it, they saw the Son of Man in his kingdom. The whole event, the, the transfiguration is incredible. Peter, James, and John were given the privilege of seeing Jesus in his divine majesty and glory. This man that they had trudged dirty roads with, had scrounged for food with, had suffered with, was suddenly revealed in his divine glory. And so Peter begins blabbering about setting up tents and stuff, only to be interrupted by God the Father who thundered out, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Obviously, this, this glorious event, like the many miracles, including the resurrection, stuck with Peter. So much so that while he's writing 2 Peter, he's sitting in prison, willing to go to his death for preaching that Jesus is God and is returning one day. In fact, part of what Peter, James, and John experienced on that mountain was a glimpse of the future exaltation of Jesus. To, to go along with Jesus' words throughout his ministry that he would one day return, Peter had a brief yet vivid demonstration of what that day is going to look like. 
Throughout the synoptics, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the word glory is almost always used in connection with the parousia. And the parousia refers to the second advent, to when Jesus returns to punish the wicked and reward the righteous, the day of the Lord. So when reading literature, the narrator or author intends the reader to pick up on things like tone and thematic elements that are woven together. Reading the Gospels especially, but even Paul's letters, the reader is intended to connect the two themes, the revealed glory of Jesus with his second coming. With that in mind, the transfiguration was a brief manifestation of the second advent, a pointing forward to the return of Jesus. As theologian Douglas Moo explains, put simply, the transfiguration reveals Jesus as the glorious king, and Peter was there to see it. So yes, Jesus is saying that some of his disciples, three of them to be exact, will see him in his glory. And that prophecy was fulfilled at the transfiguration six days later. But the transfiguration points ahead to the final day of the Lord when Jesus will be revealed to all humanity the way he was revealed to Peter, James, and John on that mountain. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter is telling the readers, don't tell me that Jesus isn't coming back. I was there. I saw Jesus in his glory and majesty. He's the king, and he's coming back to establish his kingdom in its final form. And then in verse 19, Peter essentially says, but hold on, there's more to my argument. And that brings us to our final point, a reminder of the word. Please follow along as I read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Immediately a question jumps to my mind. What specifically is the prophetic word that Peter is talking about? And there are three possible answers for what Peter means by prophetic word. First off, it's, it's obvious from verses 20 and 21, if you look just ahead, that Peter is talking about holy scriptures. With that in mind, the first possible answer is the Bible as a whole. However, that seems unlikely. While the apostles did view their writings as authoritative, as should we, at the time of the writing of 2 Peter, the New Testament canon had not been completed. Maybe it's referring to the Old Testament as a whole. Maybe, and some scholars do lean that direction, but I think there's a better answer. When we look at the immediate context, Peter's proclaiming of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, it would seem that Peter probably has in mind Old Testament prophecies that point towards the coming day of judgment, the day of the Lord. And I'm not going to have you turn to them, but two Old Testament passages are helpful in seeing this. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold my servant whom I, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. In Psalm 2.7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, I have begotten you. And we can hear strong echoes of those two verses in God's words that rang out from heaven during the transfiguration. And if you were to take the time to read all of Isaiah 42 and Psalm 7, and I encourage you to take the time to do just that this afternoon, you discover the theme of judgment. When Peter says that these prophetic passages are more fully confirmed, 
he's referencing the transfiguration. And this is important because there were false teachers popping up all over the early church that were overly spiritualizing the Old Testament prophecies regarding the last day. With, with the first half of verse 19, Peter is saying, not so fast, false teachers. The transfiguration is evidence that we, the apostles, know for certain that the Old Testament prophecies are meant to be taken literally. Jesus is coming back in judgment. And to ignore that is to ensure that entrance into his eternal kingdom will be barred to you. In the words of Douglas Moo, the transfiguration, in anticipation of Christ's ultimate kingdom glory, shows that the words of the prophets must be taken with full literal force. Thus Christians can be even more confident of their fulfillment. Peter's argument is that the transfiguration interprets the Old Testament prophecies. And that the interpretation validates the Old Testament prophecies. The day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, is literally going to happen. Now, I, I want to note briefly that some of you may have a translation that reads something like, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Some people adhering to that translation claim that Peter means that the prophecies of the Old Testament are more reliable than the life and ministry of Jesus, specifically the transfiguration. However, that would mean Peter is pitting Holy Scriptures against Jesus. And it would also undermine his claim in verses 16 through 18 that the transfiguration refutes the false teachers, as well as undermine his claim to apostolic authority. That position, I believe then, is untenable based on the context and, frankly, my Christology and Greek grammar. Because the Greek word here, translated more sure in some versions, when used in a superlative sense in a comparative form, you're welcome, is almost always used in the legal sense of guaranteed security and therefore valid. As one brother told me yesterday, notarized. Based on the Greek grammar and the overall context of the passage, the words more sure are not a good translation choice, I don't think. All right, with that potential controversy out of the way, the emphasis of verse 19 is on the second half anyway, to which you will do well to pay attention. Peter is telling us that we had better pay attention to the Holy Scriptures, specifically the prophecies to which this context is pointing. So Christians, don't ignore the Old Testament. Read it. And if, when, you find some of the passages difficult to understand, look to the New Testament. Jesus is the interpretation of the Old Testament. And the apostles are the ones who proclaim that interpretation. This is why you'll hear us say from time to time that the New Testament interprets the Old. That's one of the arguments that Peter is utilizing against the false teachers. And this is why he insists that we will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. If God's word is true, and it is, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, if the transfiguration is evidence for Jesus' return, and it is, then we should faithfully adhere to the teachings of the Bible. This isn't a myth. This isn't man-made. This is God's revelation of himself and his plan to save his people. And throughout the Bible, God's word is frequently referred to as a lamp, a light. One of the more well-known passages is Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And it's a lamp that reveals God's will and plan. And in doing so, enables God's children to live in light of the coming day. In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. 
For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul latches onto the concept of, the, of day, the day of the Lord, the final day, which is a common theme throughout the Bible, and stresses that Christians are to live in light of that final day. What we do now in this present time matters for the final day. In Romans 13, we find the negative of what Peter has been encouraging us so far in 2 Peter. Peter is encouraging us to add virtues. Paul is telling us to put away ungodliness. And both men are telling us this because Jesus is coming back. And don't be fooled by people who like to throw the word legalism around as soon as anyone starts talking about obeying God, about pursuing holiness. Because if you're not pursuing holiness, godliness, then you are pursuing wickedness ungodliness. There is no neutral position. Sadly, many of us live as if right now is what matters. Our priorities are temporal. And our society is almost, com our society isn't almost completely, I'm wrong. Our society is completely geared towards encouraging us to focus on ourselves in the here and the now. Pursue your dreams. Nobody has the right to tell you that you can't achieve whatever you want. And nobody has the right to tell you that your desires are immoral. And Peter was writing to people in the first century who were being told many of those same lies. And those lies are not what the Bible teaches. Jesus told us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and follow him. And that's Peter's legacy as he writes his farewell letter. He followed Jesus. Because of the revelation of God through his word and through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, Peter willingly died a martyr. And the reality is, is that most likely none of us in this room are going to be called to be martyred for our faith in Jesus. Yet, if we heed Peter and allow God's word to shine into our hearts, what will be revealed? What are our priorities? When the final day comes, and as Peter makes abundantly clear, it is coming, are you going to look back over your life and mourn that you invested in yourself? For example, on busy days, what activities get jettisoned first? Your Bible reading? Your prayer time? Do you justify your lack of Bible reading because you're busy? And I don't want to come across as overly harsh or harsh at all for that matter. But these are the types of questions that we should frequently confront ourselves with. Even me. Especially me. We should be willing to examine our lives in light of the fact that Jesus is returning. As another application, two weeks ago in his sermon, Mike talked about the importance of, of that all of us here at ABC be invested in teaching the gospel to the children. When you're approached about teaching a, a kid's Sunday school class, do you weigh the pros and cons of how it will affect your job or worse, your leisure time? Are you more concerned with getting the extra hours in at the office so that you can get that promotion than you are with spending the time preparing a Sunday school lesson in order to proclaim Jesus to children? Which priority do you think you'll be happy you focused on when King Jesus returns? Now, thankfully, it's, it's encouraging to hear and see how many of you willingly give of your time to teach our children. And if that's you, thank you. But, but stretch this application out over your entire life. Are there areas in which you are living for yourself 
and not in light of, of Jesus' coming return. Because He is coming back. And on that day, for Christians, the morning star will rise in our hearts, which is Peter's poetic way of saying that whatever doubts, fears, and struggles we have will be completely and utterly chased out. Our sanctification will be made complete, and we will enter God's full and final rest. All right, for the remainder of our time, we need to look at these final two verses that are sometimes misunderstood. So essentially, there are two main interpretations for verse 20. Verse 20 is either talking about the origin of the prophecies or the interpretation of the prophecies. And the context pushes us toward the second. Throughout this letter, Peter is attacking the false interpretations of Scripture put forward by the false teachers that contradict the interpretations of the apostles. In verse 20, Peter is arguing that readers of the Bible need to allow the apostles' interpretation of the prophecies shape their understanding of who God is and what His Word is saying. Look, the Bible is not open to being cavalierly interpreted based on our whims and fancies, on what makes our day-to-day -day life better, on what helps us pursue our dreams. And the problem of false teachers hasn't improved since 2 Peter. We're still beset by those who twist Scripture to serve their own ends. Turn on the TV and listen to most of the televangelists. Actually, don't do that. That would be a bad idea. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus told us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. Peter, while writing this letter, was sitting in prison waiting to be martyred for his faith. And in this letter, he's encouraging us to stop living as if today is what matters. Jesus is coming back in that day, the final day of the Lord is what matters. Yet we have false teachers telling us that Jesus wants us to live our best life now. That's a lie of the devil intended to take our eyes off of Jesus' return. Don't listen to Joel Osteen. He'll drag you to hell. And frankly, it also wouldn't take you long to uncover false teachers who dismiss the writings of the Bible that they find distasteful. One group calls themselves the Red Letter Christians. Peter's writing about false teachers, so I'll name some. They reject the writings of Paul especially, but all of the Bible that didn't pass Jesus' lips. Except all of the Bible passed Jesus' lips. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. And frankly, the red-letter Christians reject most of the Bible in order to justify sexual immorality. Just like the false teachers in 2 Peter, there is, there is nothing new under the sun. So Christian, please do not allow yourself to be distracted or deceived by false teachers. Peter is urging us to pay attention to the interpretations of the apostles, the writings that are included in the canon that we call the New Testament and the Old Testament. What do they say about God, about sin, about salvation, about the Christian life, about what it means to live virtuously as God's children, about the things to come? Our statement of faith is not new. The gospel we confess is the gospel that's been confessed for over 2,000 years. And that consistency is the result of what we find in verse 20 and then carrying into verse 21 of our text. So verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Look, the, the reason interpreting the prophecies isn't a free-for-all is because the prophecies were given by God. Carrying that forward, the apostles' interpretations were given by God. And while Peter is most likely referencing prophecies about the day of the Lord, the theology of these verses can be applied to the Bible as a whole. 
What's more, in this context, Peter is saying that the apostolic writings, that the New Testament are as divinely inspired as the Old Testament. But what is carried along by the Holy Spirit mean? Were the writers of the Bible simply dictated to? Well, the, the Bible is a wonderful book filled with a variety of literary voices, styles, that enable God's Word to shine clearly in our hearts. Different tones, different genres, different points of emphasis, all combined to produce the rich tapestry that is the single story of how God redeems His people back to Himself. And we call that story the Bible. And God didn't simply dictate the words to the writers of the Bible. A, a more literal translation for the word carried is like a ship carried by the wind. The implication here is that the writers of the Old Testament prophecies were inspired by God. He used their personalities, their levels of education, their writing styles, and God used their words. The words that the, that the writers chose to use were also the words that God wanted them to use to communicate his intended message. Three weeks ago, I said that the Bible doesn't recognize any tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And our doctrine of inspiration fits right into that. And so you have to ask yourself, are you going to submit to what God has chosen to reveal? Or are you going to rebel against what God has chosen to reveal and pursue yourself? And I have one final application this morning. Cherish God's word. All of it. Store it up in your heart. God's word is a powerful light that the Holy Spirit will use to reveal your idols, your rebellion. And God's word will compel you to rest in the forgiving grace of Jesus. One of the primary means of grace that the Holy Spirit uses in our sanctification is reading the Bible. Don't cut yourself off from that. Read God's Word. And with that, I want to conclude with a call to submit to God through faith in Jesus. And for those here who are doing that, heed Peter's concern, his teaching. Jesus is coming back one day and how we live matters. Live in light of the coming day of the Lord and not in light of temporal concerns. Let's pray. Father, you have promised that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So use your word this morning to reveal the idols we are still treasuring in our heart. Use your word to illuminate our path so that we may walk in accordance to your will. Be with us now and continue to call us to love and serve you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Our final song this morning.